you guys want to turn in your Bibles to um, Jeremiah 33 this morning, Jeremiah 33 is where we find ourselves going through our last series in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 33. In this particular chapter, there's a memory, there's a verse there that probably is a memory verse for many of us. Perhaps you have it up on your refrigerator, or perhaps you've memorized it. And here's the verse, verse 3, call to me and I will answer you and I will tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. Is that a wonderful verse? Isn't that an incredible verse? And it's very applicable to you, perhaps, where you find yourself today. We have to understand, however, it had a specific meaning to Jeremiah in his setting that he found himself in. Do you remember the setting? We talked about it last week. He is in, according to verse 1, in the court of the guard. He's confined. He's in jail. Okay? The Babylonians, the Chaldeans are at the very gates, just a few weeks, perhaps a month or two away from overrunning the city. And in that setting, God says to him, you call on me and I will tell you great and mighty things that you do not know. Now imagine being in that kind of situation and there's something that God wants to tell you and it's, it's very, very special. And he hasn't revealed it to you yet and he wants to show Jeremiah. In his situation, something very, very wonderful is about to happen. I want to look at that this morning, and then I also want to make some application uh, for us from that passage. So let's read first, we'll take it in small sections, verses 1 through 13, make a few comments about the setting, and then look at the three great and mighty things that God wanted to say to Jeremiah that day. Verse 1, then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the second time while he was still confined in the court of the guard saying, thus says the Lord who made the earth, the Lord who formed it to establish it, the Lord is his name. Call to me and I will answer you and I will tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. For thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the houses of this city and concerning the houses of the kings of Judah which were broken down to make a defense against the siege ramps against the sword. While they are coming to fight with the Chaldeans and to fill them with the corpses of men whom I have slain in my anger and in my wrath and I have hidden my face from this city because of all their wickedness. Behold, I will bring to it health and healing and I will heal them and it will reveal to them an abundance of peace and truth. I will restore the fortunes of Judah, the fortunes of Israel, and I will rebuild them as they were at first. I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me, and I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned against me, and by which they have transgressed against me. It will be to me a name of joy, praise, and glory before all the nations of the earth, which will hear of the good that I do for them, and they will fear and tremble because of all the good and all the peace that I make for it. Thus says the Lord, yet again there will be heard in this place of which you say it is a waste without man, without beast. That is in the, in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate, without man, without inhabitant, without beast. The voice of joy, the voice of gladness, the voice of a bridegroom, the voice of a bride, the voice of those who say give thanks to the Lord of hosts. 
For the Lord is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. And of those who bring a thank offering into the house of the Lord, for I will restore the fortunes of the land as they were at first. Thus says the Lord of hosts, there will again be in this place which is waste without man or beast, in all of its cities a habitation of shepherds who rest their flocks. In the cities of the hill countries, in the cities of the lowland, in the cities of Negev, the land of Benjamin, the environments of Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah, the flax will again pass under the hands of the one who numbers them, says the Lord. Okay, the setting, verses 1 through 13, really has two breaks out into two sections. First, in verses 4 through 5, the Chaldeans will destroy the city of Jerusalem. We've looked at this before, and he's told Jeremiah this before, so there's nothing really new here. Okay? Then the second section is found in verses 6 through 13. He makes a promise that he's going to restore the nation of, Jer- of Israel, restore Jerusalem to its greatness. He said that before. There's nothing new that he, he is, hasn't revealed before. But I want to make a note before we move on to verses 14 and following. Did you notice all the things that he said he was going to do for Israel have not, as of yet, been fulfilled? When you look at it, bring health and healing, restore their fortunes, verse 8, cleanse them from all their iniquity. There'll be a joys and praise to the whole earth. The voice of joy and gladness will fill Israel. That has not, maybe just a little bit, but really hasn't been fulfilled. It's still in the future. Okay. So, here's what he tells. Here's the setting. He says, the city is going to be destroyed, but I'm going to restore it. Now, here's what God wants to say to Jeremiah. This is what he doesn't understand. How are you going to do it? How's it going to happen? How is this wonderful thing, this this nation that seems slated for doom, how are you going to restore it? How is it going to work out? Verses 14 and following, he tells him three specific things. Great things. Mighty things that he is about to do. Let's take a look. Verse 14. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days, at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved. Jerusalem will dwell in safety. And this is the name by which she will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man before me to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to prepare sacrifices continually. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant for the day and my covenant for the night, so that day and night will not be at their appointed time, then my covenant may also be broken with David my servant, so that he will not have a son to reign on his throne, and with the Levitical priests, my ministers, as the host of heaven cannot be counted and the sand of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the descendants of David my servant and the Levites who minister to me. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Have you not observed what this people have spoken, saying the two families which the Lord chose? He has rejected them. 
Thus they despise my people. No longer are they a nation in their sight. Thus says the Lord, if my covenant for the day and night stand not, and the fixed patterns of heaven and earth I have not established, then I would reject the descendants of Jacob and David my servant, not taking from his descendants rulers over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but I will restore their fortunes and will have mercy on them. Notice the first thing that he says to them, the first great and mighty thing found in verses 14 through 18, he will use a righteous branch of David. Now he's talked about this before in several earlier chapters, but he hasn't given us that kind of information. He hasn't given Jeremiah exactly how this is going to work. He is going to use a righteous branch of David. What does that mean? Let's take a look. Verse 15. In those days, a branch, a righteous branch of David, will suddenly spring up. In other words, when he begins to bring forth these promises to Israel, suddenly this righteous branch of David will be there. Hmm. That sounds familiar to many of us. Verse 15. He will be righteous. He will be righteous. Now the Bible tells us that what? There's none righteous. No, not one. That's Psalm 14. That's also reiterated in Romans 3. But he, the branch of David, will be a righteous man. Notice what he will do. He will execute justice and righteousness according to verse 15. He will execute, he'll bring forth justice and righteousness. Now in Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 24, Gabriel gives the prophet David a scenario of what he calls the Messiah will do when he comes. Listen to what Gabriel had told David. He will finish transgressions. He will make an end of sin. He will make atonement for iniquity and bring in everlasting righteousness. And Judah will be saved, not only in the sense of physically, but spiritually. Who do we recognize whom David is, who, uh, is spoken of as the branch of David, that is spoken of by Daniel and also Jeremiah? Well, it's Jesus. It's obvious. It's Jesus. He's talking about Jesus, the Messiah. He is of the, thro- of the lineage of David. He is going to rule for David. Okay. Now, as we look at these verses, however, how about verse 18? And along with this David, the descendant of David, and a Levitical priest shall never lack a man before me to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and prepare sacrifices. How does that figure in to what Jesus is going to do when he comes as the Messiah? Hmm. Well, from a Hebrew perspective, if we just forget the New Testament for a moment and step back into the Hebrew perspective of as they look forward, we would have no problem with understanding that there needs to be a king and there needs to be a priest. No problems at all, right? Okay. However, from the New Testament, we say, well, how does that work out? And it all is explained to us very clearly 
in the book of Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews it says that Jesus is the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now Melchizedek is an interesting character, isn't he? Why is he interesting? Because he is not a Levite. He is not a Levite. As a matter of fact, it says that Melchizedek was so special that when Abraham came back from the battle, he gave tithes. He tithed to Melchizedek because Levi, in a sense, Levi was recognizing the kingship of Melchizedek by tithing it to him through Abraham. So we would have no problems with seeing Jesus being both king and high priest. That's what we're seeing here. Okay. The first and great mighty thing that he tells them, that when I restore the nation of Israel, I will use the righteous branch of David. What does that mean? What does that mean? Everything is wrapped up in Jesus. <laughs> Everything is wrapped up in Jesus. If anything's going to be set right, it's going to be set right by Jesus. If righteousness is going to be established, it's going to be established by Jesus. If joy and gladness is going to be restored, it'll be through Jesus. If nations rejoice in God, it'll be through Jesus. If we're cleansed from our sins, it'll be through Jesus. If we find wholeness and health, total wholeness and health, it's going to be through Jesus. Now, every once in a while, we have some great politician who comes through with a plan for a peace plan for the Mideast. We see that every couple of years, but the Bible tells us there's only one who has the ultimate peace plan, and it's found here in the great and mighty promises that were given to Jeremiah that day. It's Jesus. Okay. Second great and mighty thing that he tells them, He will multiply the followers of the Messiah. He will multiply the followers of the Messiah. Look in verses 19 through 22. First thing he says in verses 20 and 21, he affirms his covenant. You notice how he affirms his covenant? Look how he says he affirms his covenant. If you can break my covenant for the day and the night, so that day and night will not be at their appointed time, then my covenant will be broken. So what is he saying is, if day and night can somehow be confused the way it is, then my covenant can be broken. Well, is that going to happen? No. But even then he makes it more intense. Notice what he said. He said, not if I change night and day, but he says what? If you. (laughs) Now, is that possible? Mm, Not possible at all. So he says, if you can change my covenant, the way day and night works, then I'll break my covenant with David. Not going to happen. Then, think about the scriptures that come to mind. Philippians 1.6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, what? Will complete it. What he said he was going to do in his covenant, he will do. Matthew 16, what does Jesus say to Peter and the disciples? He says, The gates of hell will not prevail against my church. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, even if we're faithless, he will be faithful because he cannot go against himself. That which he said, he will do. 
Now, uh, think about how the context in which this was spoken. He is saying that, notice in verse, where am I here? In verse 22, that the host of heaven cannot be counted and the sand of the sea cannot measure, so I will multiply the descendants of David, my servant, and the Levites who minister to me. Think about the context of what he's saying. Okay. Jerusalem is under siege, has been under siege for several years now. Thousands have died through the pestilence and famine that came about from the siege. And thousands will die in the, when the final attack comes. And then thousands will be taken away to Babylon in exile. That's the context of what this is spoken. And he's saying to Jeremiah, it looks like it's all over for Israel, but guess what? The descendants of the Messiah will be like the sand of the, sand of the sea and what the host of heaven. Now, have you ever gone out to the desert and come outside after the sun sets and there's no lights in the city and you can see? Do you see how many stars there are? Now, they're trying to count the stars. Men is trying to count the stars, but they're, they're having an awfully hard time. But then he even goes further. He even goes further and he says, it'll be like the sand of the sea. Has he ever gone to the beach? Can you count the sand on the beach? No. Uncountable. Now, what is, what do you, you're saying, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. What do you mean that he will multiply the followers of the Messiah? Now, remember we were talking, as we're looking at this prophecy from the, from the Hebrew side, we see it, uh, the king and the priest. However, when we look at it from the New Testament side, we see that these promises are directed towards who? The Messiah, who's going to be both king and priest. Okay. I believe when he says... The descendants, the descendants of my servant David and the Levites, he's talking about those who believe in the Messiah. Those who believe in the Messiah will be countless billions. Now you say, well, why do you say that? Well, let me, let me see if I can explain myself. When Abraham was asked by God in Genesis chapter 15. He says, come out of your tent. Come out of your tent, Abraham. I'm going to show you something. And Abraham looked up at the sky and he says, God said to him, you see the host of heaven? So your descendants will be. Oh, that's interesting. Now, oftentimes we think only in the context that he's talking about who? The Jews. But I don't believe he's talking only about the Jews. Why do I say that? Well, I'm kind of looking at it as Paul looks at it. I don't know how you look at it, but I'm going to go along with Paul. Now, in Romans chapter 4, in Romans chapter 4, Paul talks about the descendants of Abraham, the sons and daughters of Abraham. And Abraham is seen as the father of those who follow in his faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. As a matter of fact, he says that grace is given not only to those of the law, that is, those of the Jewish heritage, but also to those who walk in the faith of Abraham. And in this argument of talking in Romans chapter 4, he then quotes Genesis chapter 15, verse 5. And he says, we are all children of Abraham. So what I believe Jeremiah is being told there is those who walk in the faith 
of the Messiah. And follow the Messiah will be countless billions. Countless billions. Perhaps even bigger than the American debt. But that is another story. (laughs) He will multiply the followers of the Messiah. He will uh, send forth the righteous branch of David. But there's one more. Look with me in verses 23 through 26. He will reunite the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now notice in verse 24, verse 24, he says, people have been saying, oh, there's two nations. They're never going to be joined together. They just see two nations, Israel and Judah. Now you remember how that took place. After Solomon died, after Solomon died, there was a, a civil war. Ten, the ten tribes of the northern tribes separated from the two tribes in the south. And from that time on, the ten tribes in the north were called Israel, and the ten, two tribes in the south, which were made up of Judah and Benjamin, they were called Judah. And it had been going on for almost 400 years, to the point that people were beginning to say, well, there's just two nations. He said, no, no, no. No, there's just one nation. They're the followers of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will bring them together again. Now, notice in verse 25, he says, and he brings forth this covenant thing again. He says, listen, if you can change the way day and night work, and then he even goes on, and he says, if you can change the fixed patterns of the earth, of heaven and earth, then I'll change my covenant that I made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to make them one people. The word of the Lord that he says to them, that which seems to exist now of two nations, Israel and Judah, this will not be so. Matter of fact, it will come to pass, so much so that if you can change night and day, you can change the way heaven and earth work, I'll change this promise. But I will take the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will reunite them into one nation. Now, for many people, that seemed an impossibility almost for a millennium. Almost for a millennium. More than that. That the nation of Israel would brack together. But lo and behold, in the late 1940s, we see just the very beginning, not a fulfillment of this promise, but just a very beginning as God was able to reestablish the nation which had been scattered and dead for almost 2,000 years. Three great and mighty promises that were made to Jeremiah that day. These were given almost 2,600 years ago. You know, almost 2,600 years ago. And yet we're beginning to see the righteous branch has come the first time. Now we're waiting for the second time for him to fulfill his ministry. We've seen countless billions come to faith in the Messiah. And finally, as even I was saying, we see the beginnings of the nation of Israel being restored just like God's word says. Great and precious promises. Okay, how does this apply to us? How does this verse, now that's how it applied to Jeremiah. How does this verse apply to you? How does this verse apply to me? First thing that we need to understand, 
The Lord is doing what he said. We have to understand that's very, very important. What he said to Jeremiah, he is in the process of doing, is he not? Not fulfilled yet. We've still got a couple of things that have to kind of fall in line. But he is doing what he said. And you can take what he said in this book and you can have firm commitment that what he said, he will do. He will do. How do we know that? Well, he's already doing some of the stuff in the Bible. He's already bringing to pass that which he has spoken of. And he says, trust me in this. If you can change day and night, then I'll forget my covenant that I've made. I'll forget the promises that are in this book. You can't change day and night. You can't change day and night. So first of all, he's doing what he said. And he'll do for you what he said in his word. The second thing, some of us are like Jeremiah. And I mean this, perhaps we're in a kind of a dark time. Perhaps we're in a place like Jeremiah, locked up in jail with the enemy surrounding the city. I don't imagine there was any more of a dark of a time for a believer than what Jeremiah was facing that day. And perhaps you're finding yourself, not perhaps in the same way that Jeremiah is, perhaps you're finding yourself in a very difficult time where it's just very, very hard and you can't understand what's going on. What do you do? What do you do? Well, let's go all the way back to verse 3. Call to me and I will answer you. (laughs) You're in a dark time. You're locked up. The enemy at the gates. Call to me and I will answer you. And I will tell you great and mighty things that you do not know. Now, as we look at this passage, what are... I just want to give you some overall principles, and we'll close with this, overall principles of those things that he will tell you, just like he told Jeremiah. The first thing is, and the answer as you seek him, the answer always has something to do with Jesus. (laughs) It always has something to do with Jesus. In your situation, and you're seeking wisdom, you're seeking uh, counsel, you're seeking some great and mighty things that God wants to do, it's always going to somehow involve (laughs) Jesus. It's always going to involve Jesus. He is the source of light. He is the way, the truth, and the life. So first, it will always involve something about Jesus. Second, now this is a hard one. The Lord will always first crush sin in your life. That's the first thing he'll do. He'll crush sin in your life, and then he brings new life. He will always do that. You can count, <laughs> you can count on it. Just like the sun's going to come up tomorrow. He will always crush sin in your life. And then he brings new life. Do you remember when we started the book of Jeremiah? What was his ministry? Let me, just let me read you what God told his ministry was going to be. See, I have appointed... This is uh, chapter 1, verse 10. See, I have appointed you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms. First thing to pluck up and break down, to destroy and overthrow, and then to build and to plant. The great and mighty thing that God wants to do in our lives, He first wants to crush the sin and drive out the sin in our life, and then 
He brings new life. Third thing. The Lord will do what seems impossible to those in the world. He will do that which seems impossible. For a millennium, people thought about these promises, about the Messiah coming, the promises about restoring the nation of Israel. And it seemed like what? Impossible. That's impossible. That's crazy. It'll never happen. Well, guess what? The Lord is in the, in the business of doing what seems to the world, that seems to those who have no faith, that seems to those who do not know this book. They say, oh, that's crazy. That will never happen. The Lord is in the business of doing in your life what seems to many an impossibility. It seems to be an impossibility, but that's exactly what he plans to do. If we'll call on him and he'll answer us and he'll tell us great and mighty things that we don't know yet. But the condition is what? What's the condition? Call me. Call me. Let's pray. Lord, we want to bless you and thank you for your word that you give to us this morning. I pray that we might take it to heart that we might look forward to the promises that he made to Jeremiah taking place in our time. But more than that, we would look forward to the work that you want to do in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.